This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to this episode of the Urban Political podcast, where we'll, we'll discuss the potential and pitfalls of one of the most talked and written about housing models, the Community Land Trust. I'm Matilda Gustavuson, the host of today's episode. Community land trusts are proliferating across the globe, increasingly promoted as a potential solution to the ever-worsening affordable housing crisis. The CLT housing model, which originated within the U.S. civil rights movement in the 1960s, provides a mechanism for decommodification and community control while reconfiguring property and land ownership structures. Yet in practice, the ideals of community control and participation are sometimes abandoned and many community land trusts function more as traditional affordable housing providers rather than as urban commons. This episode will discuss the causes of this inherent tension as well as regional differences and issues of funding and scale, among other topics framed around the question, are community land trusts transformative? Although the CLT model reflects increasingly diverse configurations, at a basic level, it's a nonprofit corporation that permanently removes land from the speculative market and holds it in trust on behalf of a place-based community. The model is primarily used for the provision of affordable housing, but can also be used for community gardens, commercial spaces, agricultural purposes, or other community needs. There's some variation in the types of housing provided by CLTs. Most provide owner-occupied homes, some provide affordable rental housing, and others use co-op models to transfer collective ownership to residents of multifamily buildings. In all cases, the CLT continues to own the land and limits on resale equity ensure affordability in perpetuity. Because they decommodify land, CLTs can protect tenants against displacement and help stabilize areas subject to gentrification and financialization. The CLT is typically governed by a tripartite board made up of residents, community members, and public representatives or experts to ensure that not just the residents' interests, but the interests of the broader place-based community are represented. But apart from at the board level, one of the issues we hope to cover today is how community control is actually operationalized. The first community land trust, New Communities Inc., was founded by civil rights organizers in Georgia in 1969 as a way to secure control over land for Black families. Critical of private land ownership, the founders emphasized the transformative potential of securing collective ownership and community control of both the land and the CLT for marginalized communities. Many community land trusts continue that work today, especially for poor and working class populations who are subject to displacement pressure in hyper-commodified cities. Those CLTs often result from community organizing and continue to build capacity and empower residents and non-residents to take control over their homes and the land they occupy through collective participation and decision-making, including after the implementation of the CLT. In that way, CLTs have the potential to challenge and transform underlying frameworks and property relations that produce inequalities and dispossession by building collective power, agency, solidarity, and control over decommodified land. However, at many CLTs, these practices and priorities are frequently replaced by technocratic staff that view the CLT as more of a top-down, efficient, affordable housing model than a mechanism for collective ownership and democratic participation with transformative potential. This circumstance reflects issues around funding, scale, and professionalization, as well as the politics that govern many nonprofit organizations, issues we'll hopefully touch upon in today's conversation. Over the last decade, CLTs have spread across the globe. There are currently more than 260 CLTs in the US, nearly 550 in England and Wales, and a growing number in Latin America, Africa, continental Europe, and elsewhere. These CLTs are being reproduced in different political, legislative, and social contexts, which results in different implementation processes, configurations, and challenges. So while CLTs are still a quite niche housing model, the amount of attention and support the model receives from elected officials, affordable housing practitioners, scholars, philanthropic organizations, the UN, and the EU, merits a discussion about the potential and pitfalls. And that's what we'll do today with our three panelists who work in different geographic regions and work with or on CLTs in different capacities. So I think we should start with a round of introductions. Can you briefly introduce yourselves and tell us how you came to work on community land trusts and describe the context that you work in? Do you want to go first, Olivia? 
Sure. Um, hi, I'm Olivia Williams. I um, I'm right now. I'm the executive director of Madison Area Community Land Trust in Madison, Wisconsin, in the U.S. Um, I first learned about community land trusts as an academic, uh, doing my PhD. And I was a geographer, and I was really interested and attracted to how land trust uh, can decommodify land and preserve urban space for community control or community use of spaces that are becoming more and more expensive. Um, I did research on CLTs in Minnesota, and then after I finished, I, I kind of got burnt out on academia. And about three years ago, I started working at a CLT in Wisconsin, this one. Um, and this uh, CLT has been around since 1991. It kind of went through a lot of austerity. Um, I can talk more about that, but it's been in this long slump and really needed a boost um, just to perform basic functions again, as well as to grow. So I've uh, been working on that for the last three years. Neela, will you go next? Yes, yeah, sure. Hi, my name is Neela Eilertz. Um, I'm assistant professor at uh, the Cosmopolis Urban Research Center at uh, the Vrije Universiteit Brussel in Belgium. And um, yeah, so my educational background is in architecture and human settlements. And I have give some courses on housing, social spatial research methods and urban design. And so in my research, I mainly focus on social and collective housing initiatives um, that try to tackle housing deprivation and exclusion. And in this work, I look at the impact of uh, the spatial configuration, uh, legal structure, the planning, so the process between conceiving and inhabiting a housing project, um, the participatory governance of uh, such initiatives, and this impact on the inclusion of um, disadvantaged and marginalized groups. I try to consider both the effects on individuals' lives uh, but also the potential of such initiatives to, to contribute to a wider right to housing. So I'm also interested in the way such initiatives um, and housing policy can, can contribute to processes of uh, decommodification. And so that's how during my PhD research, I came across the Community Land Trust in Brussels that was very recently established uh, when I started my PhD. And so it became one of the major case studies of my PhD. And so in this PhD project, I closely followed um, a group of inhabitants and social professionals uh, in the development of one particular collective housing project in Molenbeek. Um, I studied the effects on their personal lives, but also the bigger organizational barriers and enablers to establish a CLT projects and other types of collective housing initiatives. Well, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Tarsila Fidalgo. I'm a lawyer and an urban planner, and uh, well, I have studied things related to land tenure and property since my graduation a uh, time ago. Uh, well, actually, I am the coordinator of the Favela Community Land Trust Project at Catalytic Communities. Uh, so uh, the Favela CLT project works since 2018 to implement the first community land trust in Brazil and to spread the word about the model here. Uh, well, as I said, I'm from Brazil, and uh, here we have a very challenging scenario related to land tenure, especially in informal settlements, uh, for which we intend to use the CLT as a possibility to guarantee housing rights and the protagonism of the poor population that live in these territories about uh, territorial and community development. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so given that you work in different contexts and regions, let's talk about some of the contextual differences and the implications of those. Um, can you tell us about which conditions your specific CLCs were developed in response to, who initiated or founded them? And what were some of the adaptability issues, if any, in relation to lo local legislative frameworks and political and social contexts? Tazila, will you go first? I know you, you've written an article about this for Radical Housing Journal. Yeah. Well, that's sure. Well, uh, I will come back in time a little bit to explain the Brazilian context. Uh, so since Portugal's invasion, uh, we have had here multiple property regimes in the social praxis 
uh, even considering that just uh, uh, the private property is recognized by the Brazilian law. So uh, it results in a scenario of a land regularity that increase insecurity, especially for the poor population that lives in informal settlements. And we have uh, thousands of informal settlements here in Brazil. Well, in this scenario, we have had two movements in the last years that were especially problematic for this population. So the first one uh, was the evictions related to the change in Brazilian cities, uh, considering the mega events uh, as the way we call the Olympic Games and the World Cup that we had here in 2016 and 2014. Um, and the second one was a new federal law that pretends to start a wide process of land regularization focus on the individual private property with the potential to increase the vulnerability of the urban population that lives in informal settlements, especially in front of the real estate market. So in this scenario, it became urgent for us to think of alternatives that could, by one hand, guarantee the right to housing and the permanence of the forest, especially uh, those that live in informal settlements located in valorized areas in the city, and by the other hand, allowing them to protagonize the territorial and community development. So here is where the Community Land Trust enters Brazilian reality as a possibility for this population inspired by the Canyo Marquinpena experience in Puerto Rico. So in Brazil, we have uh, really advanced the urban legislation and we don't need a specific law to develop a community land trust. Uh, but uh, uh, of course we face some kind of challenge here, especially related to the conservatorism of some uh, legal structures and legal institutions in Brazil. Uh, but we have uh, a, rec a recent land regularization law there is also beneficial to the community land trust model, considering that it established a, a proper property regime in Brazil. Uh, so we use basically the same legal structure as Puerto Rico, uh, which is a little different from the structure used in the global north, uh, of course. And this happens because we have a lot of difference in law, in the social scenario, uh, but basically, the CLT become the owner of the land here and the residents receive it a title related to the construction. And then we build a collective regulation and coordination, majority composed by the residents always. So I think this is a general view about our context and about the question. Uh, the Madison area CLT, um... I, it started in 1991, um, and it was really founded by kind of technocratic nonprofit types and retirees who saw um, housing prices going up and, and a need for more affordability. It was still kind of early days for CLTs, um, so there weren't a lot of there wasn't a lot of knowledge at that time around what the model was. We were the first CLT in Wisconsin, so there wasn't really a lot of help um, to get it started uh, or much kind of funding support, you know, for staffing or um, early projects. Um, we've always had some help from the city on development projects, the city of Madison, but I, I feel they could have helped us a lot more um, with, with growth and acquiring more properties or just staffing or startup if it was something they really cared about. So it was still kind of always this uphill battle, even without being really connected to a movement. Um, and Wisconsin also um, is more conservative um, these days than the states around us. So the state of Minnesota, for example, has a lot more state funding for CLTs right now. And the state of Wisconsin, there's not anything at the state level that we can access. Um, and so we've always been in this kind of austerity environment where it's it's hard, it's hard to even maintain basic operations sometimes. It's hard to 
take care of our homeowners who need support um, just in their regular homeownership process. And so taking care of just basic administration and stewardship always becomes like the most important thing. And so, and since we never had much of a movement history, um, trying to push the political um, environment that way a little bit has been part of what I'm interested in, but it's it's always this challenge of having the um, just the capacity and funding to to do the basic stuff first. So that's always been kind of our challenge. And um, in around the recession in 2008, we had before that we had probably five staff, and then around that recession we had trouble accessing funds for new projects. And our staffing shrunk down and our organization shrunk down and we kind of went into survival mode for over 10 years. So we're still recovering from that era. And some of that could have been, you know, um, just what individuals in the organization made decisions around, um, you know, and but um, we're, you know, we're coming out of that slump still. So it's it's been a challenge, I think, operating in in an environment that doesn't have a lot of uh, funding support for what we're doing. It seems that the Brussels context is somehow a bit different. Um, so yeah, how, yeah, maybe, yeah, the organization has been established in 2013. Yeah, so the Community Land Trust Brussels uh, has been established then. Um, and yeah, I guess like in many, major other cities, um, it was developed in response uh, to housing crisis. Um, what might be important to mention, um, in Belgium, home ownership is a bit seen like, like the norm. Uh, it has been stimulated in the past um, by the government and also currently in Brussels, uh, the Brussels government still strongly focuses on uh, supporting home ownership. Uh, but despite the fact that it takes a very large share of um, the housing policy budget, it hasn't had uh, the desired effects. Um, so homeownership is declining. Uh, so during the last decades, it has been declining because of the steep rise um, of housing prices. Um, so like in many major other cities, um, for years, uh, the Brussels capital, in fact, for decades, uh, the region has been dealing with uh, problems of housing affordability and quality. Um, yeah, this housing crisis did not uh, remain unnoticed, of course. Um, so over the years, it led to a range of initiatives uh, from housing activists, uh, such as squat squatting initiatives, action days, um, collective housing initiatives for low income groups. Um, and so in 2018, um, some housing activists from several organizations, they joined forces and started to look for solutions, concrete solutions. And so they developed together uh, a collective housing project for low income groups. But in fact, soon they realized uh, it was not very sustainable to, to use public subsidies for full home ownership. Um, so they started to search for other formulas. And that is how they stumbled upon uh, the community land trust model. And so they got to know this model through an international study visit uh, to the Champlain Housing Trust in Burlington in Vermont. And so after the visit, uh, they developed a charter uh, for the establishment of such organization. And this was signed by 15 different associations. Um, but so the parties in power back then were very supportive um, of the model. So in, 2002, and, sorry, in 2011, the government ordered a feasibility study. Um, and this led to the actual establishment of uh, the Community Land Trust Brussels. So since 2013, Community land trusts were included in the Brussels Housing Code. Uh, the Housing Code includes all the instruments and measures of the housing policy in the region. And so last year, the organization was also officially recognized. Um, so they obtained a management contract, which gives them even more uh, stability. Um, then concerning yeah, the legal dimension, um, so CLTB largely modeled um, its own land lease contracts and its resale formulas, the bylaws, uh, and regulation on those of the CLTs in the US. So currently they make use of um, two rights. Um, I'm not sure if it's important, but uh, they make use of the surface rights and the long-term lease. And both enable residents, in fact, to own a dwelling on a land that is not theirs, so to lease the land. 
And so the contracts contain a clause um, that ensures anti-speculative conditions, including restrictions of the price increase and the renewal of the surface right um, after their duration. So these two rights that already existed in Belgian law made it relatively easy to develop the model um, in Belgium. Um, of course, uh, currently, yeah, there are some challenges. Um, and for the organization now, it's the main challenge to have the same advantage like other public housing providers. Um, for instance, to be able to make use of the money provided by urban chargers, to make use of a fast lane, uh, which enables housing providers to get a building permit more quickly. But uh, they do rely on substantial uh, government support. So in comparison to the other CLTs, they really um, rely on yeah, a substantial amount of, of money from the public government. So then let's move on to talk about one of the core advantages of the community land trust model that's often highlighted, which is the potential for community control and for commoning. How are those ideals practiced in the CLTs you work with and what sort of strategies are used to build that capacity? And then perhaps after that, we can talk about when and why that sometimes falls short. Um, so do you wanna go first, uh, Olivia? Sure. Um, one way I, I really think is a good way to practice commoning in CLTs is, is kind of nesting where uh, the community control is. Basically, like a CLT can be at a large scale and community control can happen at the co-op level or some other kind of local neighborhood level. And I think that generates a lot of possibilities for, for control. Um, and so, in our CLT, we actually have two condo associations we developed. Um, so they're not exactly cooperatives, but they operate very similarly to cooper cooperatives. Um, so we developed um, one in the 1990s and another one in the 2000s. And that second one is Troy Gardens, which is a co-housing development that's designed for people to really interact with each other a lot and have to share. And there's also a large community garden space there that um, people who don't live there can also use. Um, so commoning was really built into that design. And there's a lot of sharing and mutual aid that's very organic that happens. And Troy Gardens attracts people, especially interested in that component of the housing. Um, and so having those condo associations in the land trust allows people to kind of control what makes sense for them locally and do that separately from the CLT administration, um, though they operate kind of within the CLT. And then it gives us a, a way to interact uh, with a group of residents, you know, and have their decision-making body at their local level. Um, and, and you see people, I mean, these are all low-income people, so having more support for one another is just important for survival. Um, and we also have a resident kind of committee uh, of the community land trust, and we have residents on our board. So we do the the kind of traditional things that way. Um, we have residents right now interested in working on a tool lending library. And I really like that idea, you know, sharing, especially big equipment that you don't need to buy individually. But it's also for from a staff perspective, just the thought of managing a tool library sounds very stressful to me. So um, there's always these kind of limits on our capacity and what, you know, what makes sense to do. But there is a volunteer group kind of working on that idea and seeing where the possibilities are. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. I will uh, talk a little bit about Brazil and the Favela CLT project. Uh, well, for us, the community control is central. Uh, it is really important to highlight here that our principal target here in Brazil uh, are communities that already exist, some of them for decades. So it is vital for us uh, to put the residents in a central position, valorizing their contributions and making clear that the main objective of a community land trust in favelas is to protect and guarantee their protagonism. Uh, of course, we face challenges because, well, people need to survive. People work a lot, and uh, 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 sometimes we have some uh, uh, challenge in mobilizing people to be 
in the meetings, to talk about the territory, to talk about the project. But we are uh, in this last, uh, well, five years, um, getting a lot of progress uh, with the mobilization of the communities uh, in, the, the, in the project. Well, about the common in subject, that is something that takes more time to introduce and work with the residents. Um, well, most of them don't have much formal education and all of them are completely submerged in a society that values individualism, meritocracy and private property. So it takes a while to make them aware that acting and building things together as a true community is the best way to build a better future. But despite that, the residents in favelas have strong solidarity uh, boundaries and their survival frequently depends on that. So uh, for us here in Brazil, it's more about raising awareness about the potential of the community, not just to guarantee the survival, but also to build a better future. And this is what uh, we are trying to do here. And how, what does that look like in practice? How do you try to build that capacity and that sort of um, sort of work in practice? Well, this is a really interesting question. I could talk about it for hours. We have a lot of strategies. Uh, we try to make some activities um, more ludical, activities that could uh, get more interest for, from the, the, the residents. Uh, we try to make some um, uh, improvements in the territory, in the territory and in the constructions, uh, trying to put all the residents together and try to talk to them about how uh, that improvement just was possible because of the project, because of the mobilization, because of the community. But sometimes we feel that, well, it's some special challenge at times. Uh, we need to just do a community lunch and put everyone together to celebrate something or to talk about the difficulties, uh, talk about the politics and all the stuff and make them understand that this uh, contact, this community, that community contact is really important to their lives. So we have a lot of strategies, different strategies to put everyone together and to make them understand that together is better. That's the, that's the main point. Yes, um, I think again, there is a, Brussels is a bit different than for instance, the Brazil CLT because uh, the communities do not exist uh, yet. Um, so new housing projects are developed. Um, with people that are interested to become part of CLT. Um, so currently uh, CLT is composed of two legal entities um, and they both have a tripartite structure, um, a tripartite governance structure, as you mentioned already. And so this includes the future inhabitants, representatives of civil society and uh, representatives of the Brussels government. Um, so these peoples are involved in the board of directors which make uh, decisions concerning the organizations and its projects. So with respect to the participation of a future inhabitant in this board, this is not always so obvious. So the organization really tries to support them so that they can really fulfill their role as best as they can. So they try to really inform them about how it looks like, what this exactly, um, and how they can really take up their role uh, within this uh, board. Um, what might be a bit of a challenge, as you mentioned, um, the organization depends on, um, is dependent on public subsidies. So this means the government has a big impact on the organization and their project. So de facto, in fact, they are more dominant, let's say, in this tripartite management. Of course, during such meetings, all concerns are taken into account, but of course, yeah, the money comes from um, the public government. So, um, yeah, they will never organize activities that are against, um, let's say, the government, or they will try to keep a good relationship, um, let's say, with, with the government. Um, so when people subscribe for CLTB, they become a member. 
it's something that Olivia already mentioned. So CLT tries to ensure participation at various uh, levels. So at the level of the organization, uh, at the level of, of the project, um, but also trying to go a bit beyond uh, the organization. And so when people subscribe for CLT, they become really a member. And so as a member, they are registered on a waiting list and they can vote during a yearly assembly uh, for electing the representatives on the one hand, but they can also become part of various committees. And so CLTB has various committees that are focused on community building. So there's one member committee that really develops community activities that also organizes the yearly assembly. There are, um, there's a committee that is really focuses on um, the architecture of the projects. So for each new housing project, uh, this group of people, um, they are involved in the sketch design of the project and in also drafting uh, the public tender because they work with public tenders um, as they rely on, uh, on um, yeah, government support. Um, there's also a committee that organizes bicycle classes, or there's also a committee involved in uh, the allocation of the new housing project. So in this way, they try to ensure that really members are already participating in, in yeah, the organization, in, in its daily operation. Then at the level of the housing projects. Um, so in the past, inhabitants were also really involved in developing the housing project. So in really designing the project, um, in designing the public tender, but the organization realized um, it took too long this process of um, developing the project and then finally inhabiting the project. So for one project, it almost took eight or eight years, I think, and this was too heavy for inhabitants. Um, so they decided to only, yeah, let's say, um, support this group of inhabitants just before and when moving in in the project. Um, and so they really, yeah, support them to take care of, um, let's say, neighborhood activities um, by organizing flea markets or, or parties for the neighborhood, uh, but also uh, for taking care of the collective spaces, really managing the project, uh, paying the year, the weekly, uh, the, the monthly bills, excuse me, um, but also to really rationalize the energy use because the buildings are nearly zero energy. Um, and yeah, so really to support them to live autonomously in the project. So the idea is that after some years, uh, the CLTB doesn't have to be present anymore, that the inhabitants can take care of the project uh, themselves, which is not, not that obvious because it's really a collective housing project with collective spaces that have to, to be managed and so on. So yeah, that's how they try at various scale levels to enable commoning uh, community participation. Well, so then let's move on to talk about funding and scale and how those influence community participation. Obviously, we have different funding sources in different contexts and different levels of, of scale. Um, but can you talk a little bit about some of the primary funding sources, some of the primary challenges in relation to that, and how funding and scale influences community participation? Well, maybe I can start. Uh, well, so for us, uh, on the Pavela CLT project, the primary funding source are grants from international foundations and governments. Uh, well, in Brazil, we are just now living a very hard political period when the poorest weren't even considered by the government. Uh, so in this scenario, we could not count on any internal funding which is different from the European or US context in most of the case. Um, this is a, very, a really big challenge for us, considering that funding is fundamental to guarantee community participation. Uh, we work here in Brazil with a very small team. We have five people working in the, in the project exactly to try to address the biggest part of the fund to the communities. So uh, we try to guarantee the community participation uh, by providing food, transport, children care, uh, and other structures uh, to guarantee the, 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 that people could come to the meetings and stay there and not be overcharged with uh, uh, their domestic work and their, well, professional work. Uh, so we are dealing here with vulnerable people that need to work on the streets, 
or need to work in multiple jobs to guarantee food, light, water. So these basic things that the Brazilian state fails to provide. So most of our funding is federal money that gets passed through the cities. Uh, but more recently, the city of Madison has its own affordable housing fund that's from property taxes. And that funding is a little more flexible and it's kind of opened up some of the funds we can use and, and allowed us to access greater numbers of um, funds for unit for more units. And so um, we're still getting both types of funding and the federal funding is a little more restrictive in how we can use it. And it's more of an administrative burden, which means basically we have less time to do more interesting stuff because we're trying to meet all the needs of uh, and check all the boxes of that funding. Um, but what's interesting, I would say, is that um, in this time that we've been um, at lower capacity and kind of struggling to um, keep up with everything, we have been able to do like one house at a time where we buy a house that's already in the city, already exists, and then we rehab it and bring it into the land trust. And so we have houses all over the city of Madison that they're not very connected to each other. Um, they don't have like a condo association or some le local level of control. But that's just been the easiest thing we can do. And we we access city and federal funds to do those. Um, but we haven't had the capacity to do a larger project in a while um, to, to produce more units at one time where we could get more residents involved and um, have their own kind of level of control over that project. So we're actually getting to a point where we can do a larger project again soon. And actually, as we grow and have greater capacity to do bigger projects and access more funding from the city, we can actually create more community control at that project level, I would say. And so we're we're trying to grow um, in that kind of nested way where we can do, um, you know, project by project, kind of get people involved um, in um moving in and, and designing what they want their community to um, be like in terms of their decision making and what they want to make decisions over and um, have that local control at the project level. And that allows us to um, empower people, but also ha have more access to them over time and, and make sure they have support with each other and, um, and a way to connect with us basically through um, their uh, homeowner association or uh, condo association or um, that kind of decision-making body at that project level. And so also in Brussels, most of the funding comes from the Brussels government. It supports the organization and um, so Ali, the operation of the organization. So um, the people that work for the organizations are paid by the Brussels government but also uh, supports the investments in land and in dwellings. So with the money, the organization buys the land and pays part of the building costs. And the latter is really necessary to keep the housing affordable um, for the target public of Community Land Trust Brussels. And so half of their funding comes from the Brussels government. The rest uh, comes from various other smaller public subsidies and also gifts from individuals and foundations. So it's a nonprofit organization, which means they can uh, develop uh, various campaigns um, um, in order to yeah, receive gifts from, from foundations or individuals. Um, I mentioned already, of course, the challenges that they have to yeah, have a good relationship with the government. Um, so, yeah, currently there seems to be quite a lot of support um, for the, from the Brussels region, but of course the organization remains quite vulnerable for political changes. Um, they're really dependent on the willingness of governmental bodies uh, to continue making funds and land um, available. Um, yeah, another challenge is facts. It's not really related to government support but um, the fact that the organization becomes bigger and bigger they're growing so uh, the community land trust brussels is taking up most of the work 
And this also becomes quite challenging in terms of involving the members of CLT. So they try to develop them, no, sorry. They try to involve them in various ways, but still it's, yeah, the relationship between the administration and, and the inhabitants is less direct as they become bigger and bigger. Another difficult issue that maybe is also important to mention, um, it's yeah, the, to find really affordable land in the city. So in the beginning, the organization especially developed smaller infill projects in the denser areas of Brussels. Um, so through regeneration programs like neighborhood contracts, they were able to buy cheap urban land that, that used to be owned by the municipality. But such sites become sparser uh, in the dense neighborhoods of Brussels. So they have to look for land um, a bit further away. And here it's more and more difficult um, to develop projects um, as new projects are often really contested also by ecological organizations. So yeah, the, so, yeah building on vacant land, former far land, um, former land of the railway station, you see that there's a lot of contestation around these projects. Um, as, yeah, a lot of people yeah, really stress this need for more green space, for more green areas in the city. And that's why it really becomes challenging for organizations like CLT to build on such, um, such lands. I guess I, I want to go back to something you said a minute ago when you said, as the organization grows, the distance between the administrators and the community, the inhabitants also grows. And I know from CLT administrators I've spoken to in the US that it's really difficult to get funding for a community organizer position. So it's really hard to kind of maintain that closeness and continue to build that capacity in inhabitants and the community after the implementation of the CLT. Is that something you have experienced and is that something you could speak to? I think in Brussels it's still quite okay because they are not that big yet and um Still, they succeed in developing various committees where inhabitants remain involved in some way. But of course, the organization started really small. They developed a few projects. So everyone knew each other in the beginning. The inhabitants knew all the administrators and so on. So it was kind of different vibe. So I think currently they try to install such committees in order to, uh, to, to have this community vibe or to, to still um, support this community feeling within the organization, but um, it's more challenging than before. Ali, they have to do more effort. They have to reflect on it. Uh, they have to reflect how, um, how, yeah, on how participants of future projects can meet each other. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's really a reflection process. Uh, it, it needs a kind of reflection. Um, so it's less obvious than before, but still, I think they managed to, to have, um, to still have a community feeling um, through these yearly assemblies, by uh, through the, these various committees that are organized, but also within the projects, um, they support the inhabitants. They have a bit of funding to to support them for a while, even when they inhabit the project. Um, so I think for now they succeed in it quite well. But yeah, reflection. Let's say they, they continuously have to adapt. Um, yeah, regarding Ali. Vis-à-vis uh, -vis the size that they have, let's say, and the amount of project. And Olivia, I know that's something you covered in your research as well. Um, can you speak about it a little bit in the U.S. context? Yeah, you know, I think my thinking has evolved on this in living it because it is so hard to access funding to just operate the dang organization, you know, like, I really wish we had funding like the Brussels CLT. I think that would make some of this a lot easier. Um, and so at some point, in order to just um, kind of work as an organization, you have to keep growing to access more money to uh, because most of the money for us is for development. Um, so we have to do new housing to get more income for our regular staffing, for our administrative and 
uh, stewardship staffing. And so it kind of supplements the rest of the programming um, to just grow. And so that's a big, big part of how CLTs in the U.S. work. And that's, I mean, it's a lot of administrative stuff too. I mean, running a nonprofit is always a lot of crap. It's crazy. It's, I mean, I thought it was bad when I was doing research and now that I'm doing it, I'm like, oh my God, it's so much grant writing, grant compliance, um, making sure I'm filling out paperwork right, paying bills, making sure I have insurance, like all these things just take almost all of my time. And so I think if we, you know, sometimes multiple CLTs uh, pop up in the same city and like, I don't think that's necessarily bad, but I do think if we could, um, you know, try to minimize the amount of administrative crap we have to do by by combining forces somehow, um, you know, have or having like one CLT in the city, but with local neighborhood based committees or local control over projects, I think that really minimizes the the crap you have to do, all the bullshit, because then you can focus your extra time on, um, you know, community control or political advocacy or um, making a really cool project. Um, so I think it helps to have some economies of scale to to do the cool stuff. And we've just struggled with that through our whole 32 years of existence. So I, <laughs> I, I see the value in us growing to a point where we have more staff to do more interesting stuff. I wonder if you guys think that local tenant union partnering with them could help kind of support some of the organizing and mobilization of the community if that could kind of take over part of that work for the CLT? I, I still think that depends on where you are. I'll say just one thing about it that in Wisconsin there's so few tenant protections. It's uh, we just we don't have very strong tenants unions or tenant organizing because if you stop paying your rent, you can get evicted very quickly. Um, and it's just not a good tactic here, really. It's, it doesn't, I mean, it's a very risky tactic for the actual renters. So for us, it's more just the housing movement in general is starting to pick up and this recognition that prices are skyrocketing. Madison is confined, like you can't really grow outward. Um, so we have to figure out how to make land affordable within the existing city. And there's growing and growing kind of recognition of that. It's slow, but I feel hopeful that just the more, um, you know, I speak about it and write about it and the more other people start noticing and talking about it. I think there's growing interest in funding the CLT and and kind of decommodifying more and more land, um, just connecting with the general housing movement here. In Brussels, CLTB doesn't work together with uh, tenant unions, uh, but they do work together with local associations. So um, these associations, I mean, so social workers, really support the local projects um, and the inhabitants. Um, so, for instance, in uh, giving training sessions on energy use, giving training sessions on co-ownership, um, on what CLT exactly entails. Um, so, but. Yeah, of course, they do not work for free, <laughs> um, but that's what I mentioned. So they rely on smaller forms of subsidies. They don't rely on this um, bigger source of money of the Brussels government, but they rely on smaller subsidies. But also them, yeah, it's it's this associational landscape are really dependent on yeah making grant writing, writing reports, this administrative bullshit that you just spoke of. Yeah, it's very present, I think, also in the Brussels region. And what about in Brazil, Tesla? Is that a similar? Do you have a similar experience? Uh, well, uh, here in Brazil, considering that we don't have a community land trust already on uh, his feet, and uh, that we work with uh, already existing communities, we don't have uh, any 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 way to to pay to some association or to some. Uh, uh, some people to come and do some kind of uh, mentorship or, or something like this. And we don't have a lot of uh, associations um, in this home ownership 
uh, team working in this in this field. Uh, so what we try to do is work with uh, the local associations that already exists, uh, trying not to um, make them uh, um, give some kinds of, of classes or something as Nila has said, uh, but work with them to make the arrangements that we need to uh, put a community land trust on his feet. Uh, and we try also to construct an association with the households, with the residents, um, to, well, to have the property of the land and to uh, um, manage the, the community land trust. And I think this is uh, interesting because uh, in Brussels and in Madison, as I am understanding uh, with the, the, the speech of Olivia and Nila, we have an organization that manage a lot of uh, community land trusts, a lot of buildings, a lot of uh, places, a lot of constructions. And here in Brazil, we are trying to do um, one association to one community. So each community will have uh, uh, its own association to manage uh, the, the, the territory. And this happens because we have a lot of difference between the communities that already exist. So uh, it, would, it, it would, would be impossible for us to be one organization that will manage a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, buildings, a lot of uh, houses and a lot of community. Um, so we have a, a different uh, uh, way to work and we try to work with and organize our own uh, associations to manage the community land trust. As a final question, where do you see the transformative potential in the CLTs that you work with? And do you think that the conditions are in place for that potential to be realized? I think this is a very provocative question, actually. Uh, but, well, uh, I think that, that community land trusts are not transformative by themselves, but they carry that potential. Uh, so for me, community land trusts will be more transformative uh, the more they can involve people creating or strengthening communities. Uh, in addition, for me, in addition to a formal or legal arrangement, the soul of a CLT is the transformation of people, their empowerment and belief that they can collectively build more and better. Uh, so formal arrangements could change, laws change, but a person who has understood and experienced the potential of a collectivity will be forever transformed. And of course, it is not easy to create or strengthen community, especially in the era of extreme individualism and meritocracy that we live in. Uh, but it seems to me that insisting on this effort is fundamental. Um, and perhaps this is the great lesson that the experience of CLTs in the global South can bring to the experience of the global North now and in the future. Uh, how to build and strengthen communities, how to make the CLT a model of life and not just a more protective legal format for the residents. Uh, and I think that for these CLTs need encouragement. We all talk about challenges related to funding, but we have a, a much more challenges. Uh, so we need financial incentives, we need the structure incentives, we need spaces for debates like this one. We need uh, dissemination, uh, uh, dissemination of the model. We need the scientific research. Uh, so uh, we have to, to always think that at the global level, CLTs are still a relatively unknown model and we need to make uh, it more visible. And I think this is, the, the, this is our first mission. And of course, uh, you guys are helping us to do that today. 
So I think this question of of transformation is obviously something I've written about before, and I think it's very complicated to think of um, transformative in what way and for whom. And there's all these different kind of types of transformation and spectra of transformation. So I, I do think in some way, just the model itself is transformative to the urban landscape and uh, decommodifying land and maintaining affordability as as you know multinational corporations are buying homes and uh, the financialization of real estate and like wealth inequality and all these things. I do think just having the properties there is transformative to some extent. And I think there's you know we have goals of of being transformative and inspiring people to understand um, how collective ownership and collective decision making can um you know be empowering or or you know increase uh, resilience and um democracy in our like just the way that real estate works or the way development works like that is a big goal but it's not always something we can get to uh, with every project and i i don't think that means that what we're doing is is bad really or you know i think it it is about the funding um and even uh, capacity for volunteers, um, where volunteering has become harder as incomes have stagnated, right? So um, I, I think there's all these challenges within the system we live in to, to be like the most transformative we could possibly be. Um, but I do think the model itself is good. Um, and so it's complicated. <laughs> um, I'll stop there for now. Yeah, I agree with Stasila and Olivia. Um, there is no easy answer to this. Um, I agree that it's really, let's say, supports individual transformation of, of future inhabitants and inhabitants that really add to their empowerment. Um, in Brussels, it's also really contributed to debates on, on decommodification, on commons. And it's really in a country where full ownership of the housing is really the norm. So. Increasingly, the Brussels region links uh, the production of owner-occupied housing by public bodies to measures to ensure uh, long-term affordability by splitting land and buildings or by focusing on anti-speculative clauses in sale conditions. So it really added to the debate. Um, they also really contribute to disseminating the model in Europe. They give various lectures, seminars. Um, they contributed to the establishment of other organizations in, in Belgium. They also established a network um, of CLT organizations in Europe. So they really do a lot in terms of disseminating and so on. Um, of course, it yeah, runs in parallel with, uh, yeah, let's say, increasing gentrification, uh, the increasing role of financialized actors in housing development. So um, more than ever, housing has become an investment instrument. So in the way they can really have an impact on that, um, yeah, it's still a question, I think, or I, I don't think that um, governments can only solve this by supporting CLTs. I think uh, measures at various levels are, are necessary to, to, to curb gentrification and, and financialization. And then apart from that, um, I think there are also ways to maybe expand their patrimony even more. Um, CLTB um, in, in Brussels, they're really reflecting on, for instance, um buying um the land of distressed buyers so i don't know if you know the term distressed buyer but these are people that buy a, a, a bad house let's say um but that, that, that they don't have the, the means to renovate it um so their idea would be to renovate their house um and this um in exchange for the land on which the dwelling is built so they are reflecting on really also having an impact on the private ownership market, um, or they're also reflecting on supporting um, cooperatives um, to also add to decommodification. So they would also like to have an impact there. Um, so yeah, I think there is a lot of potential still for CLTB to, to expand or to expand this notion or this idea of decommodification. Okay, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, thank you so much for being on the panel today. Um, yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It was a great conversation. I hope we can 
keep in, keep in touch. Definitely. Yeah, me too. It was great to meet you all. Thank you. Yeah. Very interesting to hear your stories.